Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Right now, listeners of this program can go to tweakedaudio.com and get 33% off of any purchase just by entering the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Go to tweakedaudio.com, enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, get 33% off, get yourself some earbuds, get yourself some headphones, tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds, these are headphones, you can listen to things with them, go and get some, oh my God. You are not alone, you have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Uh, All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is apparently happening. This is me taking up some of your bandwidth. How's it going on, Brad Listy? I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, What's happening? No, seriously, what's happening? I have no idea what's happening. My guest today is Michiko Kakitani, the chief book critic for the New York Times, uh, as well as a past recipient of the Pulitzer Prize. Very pleased and honored to have Michiko here on the program. She and I will be talking momentarily. Uh, things are good here. I should tell you that. Things are good. I'm not complaining. My wife's pregnancy continues to go well, for those of you uh, who care. And our, our baby boy is now kicking. I felt him kick. For the first time, which is exciting. Did I tell you that already? That was a nice moment. So uh, that's all happening. We're, I think we're like at 22 weeks now. He'll be emerging soon. He'll be here before we know it. It's starting to become real. I know that it's starting to become real because I'm starting to uh, freak out a little bit, quietly, privately. Two kids is easier than one, right? It's cheaper, right? It's less time-consuming, right? right? I have some mail here. I got a letter from a listener named John who writes, Dear Brad, long-time listener, first-time writer, although I have been tempted many times, I love your podcast and it has provided me with entertainment and inspiration. Thank you. My fingers are crossed for you and your wife. What prompted me to write was your story of the sneezings and blessings in your yoga class. I work for a universe, and I should stop here. If you don't know this story, in uh, a recent episode, I forget which one, I was talking about how I was in a yoga class in Los Angeles, which I know uh, makes me the embodiment of an annoying cliche. But 
Uh, I was in a yoga class in Los Angeles. I do yoga every once in a while. And, uh, I was in there and uh, a celebrity was in there, a female celebrity that everybody knows, but who I'm not going to name as a matter of courtesy. And, uh, she sneezed during the yoga class. And when she did like seven or eight people said, God bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Like everyone was blessing this woman in the yoga class. And then like, you know, 20 minutes later in the yoga class, I sneezed and, uh, nobody said anything. Not a single bless you from anyone. which I found displeasing. So, uh, I will continue with John's letter. Uh, I work for a university. He writes in a major city where I sit in a cubicle farm. My department is very cliquish and it is bizarre in that, uh, people only say bless you to people in their respective cliques. Someone will sneeze to a person's left and get a blessing. And someone on the right will be met with silence despite uh, sneezing immediately afterwards. I don't bless anyone, nor am I blessed because I gave up on cliques when I left junior high 30 years ago. And the heck with everyone here. My boss, however, is troubled sometimes by not being part of a clique. It has become rather sad lately in that she will sneeze and say, bless me, just so that her sneeze isn't hanging there in silence. What kind of world do we live in? Thanks again for all the great work you do. Signed, John. Thanks, John. I don't know. It's, it's like an all or nothing. Either we bless everyone or we bless no one. Can we just agree on that? Bless you. <laughs> so annoying. A bunch of star fuckers. I don't know what that is. Clicks, office clicks. There's nothing worse. I was talking to somebody the other day about uh, Hollywood show business. I was like, show business is really the worst business. And then it occurred to me that all businesses are terrible. If you're in business, there's one thing that's for sure. It's horrible. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Michiko Kakatani, chief book critic for the New York Times. If you're into books, if you're into reading, then surely you've read some of her reviews uh, over the years. Uh, it's even possible uh, that a few of you out there have been reviewed by her yourselves. Uh, perhaps she's panned your work. Perhaps she's ruined your career, shattering it into thousands of tiny little pieces before it even had the chance to get off the ground. Perhaps uh, she snuffed out your dreams with the flick of a pen. 
Or perhaps she has no idea who you are, and you sit at home alone in your tiny studio apartment, dreaming of the day when she will read your work and find it spectacularly mediocre. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Michiko Kakutani. I'll start, I'll start in an obvious place, or what feels like an obvious place to me. I want to talk about your hair. Oh, okay. Because you, you have this beautiful, long, like super long, dark raven hair. I do have super long hair. I have freakishly long hair. All right. What's that all about? It's like, because I mean, I think about like, you know, there's like the, uh, the myth or the ancient tale of Samson and like how he thought that he derived his power from his hair. Is that right? Like, do you feel a sense of power from, uh, that, you, that you get from your hair? I don't know if I get a sense of power from it. I, I have a, a freakishness from it. So I can, uh, it, it's convenient. It's sort of like a uh, insta-freakiness. I can take it out in, and people are shocked. I can have met people over and over again. And because I've had my hair up in a bun or whatever, then when I take it out, they're like, whoa, I didn't realize you were that. But it, I don't know it feels like a power because uh, also it's a vulnerability People, sometimes I'll get creepy people coming up behind me, touching it, or yeah, it'll catch. I was going to say, people want to, because I, let, 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 I want to let listeners know just how long your hair is. Like, how long is it? It's it's not to my ankles, but it's mid-calf at its, at its longest point. It's mid-calf, and it's thick. It's thick. Okay. It's long enough that I have a coterie of hair fetishists that are, like, follow, you know, Friend me on the computer or whatever. Yeah. People, people who are weird. So wait, there, there is such a thing as a hair fetishist? There are. these. I, you know, I like long hair. It's pretty. I see it on... It's, it's, I guess it represents time and a commitment to have long hair. You can't just buy it. So that's, that's a beautiful thing. But people are weird. They get weird and... Um, they want to bra- they want to bra- they want to braid your hair. They want to like I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, I you know, I yes, I guess they do, but I don't I don't I don't interact with them myself, but I I've, I've seen the videos where they uh, follow women down the street and they're filming them. That was a turning point for me. This one guy had a had a had made all these films of of not the front of these women's faces, but just the back of them as they walk down the street, their hair, and I thought Somehow it was fucked. Yeah, well, no, that's, <laughs> it an, that's, an, that's an invasion. <laughs> no, filming somebody like like this is what I was thinking about. Uh, I forget which actor it was, but somebody was talking about the paparazzi in a way mm-hmm. that like clarified it for me. Uh, you know, because I'm I'm in Los Angeles and it's like you know that's an element of life here. And there's mm-hmm. a part of me that got, there's there have been times in the past where I've thought to myself like, oh, it's just the paparazzi. It's like you know they're just. You know, that's what you get for being famous was kind of what I maybe have told myself in the past. But then sure. this celebrity was like, yeah, in, in, like imagine um, every time you leave your house, somebody's following you with a camera. Mm. I mean, like following you. Like, I don't know why that. I mean, that's an obvious thing to say. But once I heard it put that way, it made me realize that uh, it really is creepy. It's spooky. Yeah. yeah, it's being stalked. Although, let's think about that fellow that took the pictures of Britney Spears when she shaved her head, which was one of the greatest... <laughs> moments in pop culture. I mean, right? <laughs> and I read a story where he he got those photos because he snuck into the building. Everybody was trying to take pictures. All the other paparazzi were trying to take pictures through the door or something. But he thought, I'm going to go into the building next door and see if there's a way to look between the two shops or something. And he found a tiny little 
pole and was able to, to film her shaving her head like that, right? And apparently he was talking to her um, during it, too, like, don't do it. Don't shave your head. Yeah. So there you go. Well, no, he might have been a secret hair fetishist. You never know. You never know. I mean, something, I think there's some fetishizing going on with all these paparazzi guys. But there's a, there was a documentary that I watched on, like, Netflix, and I'm forgetting the name of it. But it was about kind of like the first paparazzo. He was a New York guy. And he like just shame right. he just shamelessly hounded celebrities, but he captured these photographs of them that you know the the ones that he uh, I guess had on display or the ones that are shown in this film they seem mm-hmm. like they seem almost like high art you know or, or right. at least that's how he treats them. They're very beautiful shots of like Jack one you know Jackie Kennedy and like Central Park and you know all this kind of stuff right. and. Um, you know, I don't know. It's- Maybe there was an innocence on the part of the, the, the victims of the photos, too, because the paparazzi wasn't such a um, thing. Maybe they weren't so on guard when they were in public. Or what a burden for, for people to have to feel that uh, on guard every time they walk out on the streets. Yeah, it would suck. You've never, so you've never yeah. wanted to be, have you ever wanted to be famous? I don't know. No, not really. I mean, not in a visual way like that. No, I think uh, it would be. I've been around people who are famous. I'm around people who are famous and a little bit famous and some more famous. And and the more famous ones, um, there's a hounding that goes with it. I mean, there's an elegance that you can see some people are, are more... Um, about dealing with it than others, but I've been, um, you know, for example, at a concert with a good friend of our family, and you know, he, you just couldn't move across the room. We we're trying to get who is from it? one who's, side who's the, of who's the celeb? Ian Mackay. He was in the band Fugazi okay. in Minor Threat, and um, you just can't move across the room. It's, and everyone loves him, and he's so sweet about it, and so um, or or you know, uh, Flea um, from the Red Hot Chili Peppers another person who's incredibly nice about it, but at the same time needing to kind of disguise himself a little bit. Um, I feel like, that seems, I feel that like seems Flea, hard. Flea's small, right? He could just like put a hat on and just, you know, blend. He does. It's got a hat. He's yeah. got like an outfit. He's kind of... I was going to say, if he, would, if, he would just, if he would just put some clothes on, nobody would notice him. <laughs> you know what's funny is another famous person, Henry Rollins, He he is... You could see he's not so suave about dealing with the public, like a little, little angry, you know, <laughs> and so bad at disguising himself, just stomping around like, look at me being angry. <laughs> no, but you know what? I think like being kind of a dick sort of helps you in public because people are afraid you might hurt them if they come up to you. You know, like it's not, it's not bad to have a little bit of standoffishness if you want some privacy. Like if you're too nice, then like you know, you're just going to get overwhelmed. That's true. You know, but I think I think sometimes though, if you're too hostile and you're too machismo with your Dance, you can actually sort of attract an element of um, not even to be heavy, but an element of like negativity or something. People kind of want to uh, have some like monkey gorilla battle with you or something. So there's definitely a middle ground of not being too aggro. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing because like I like this is another way that I've heard it put is that like if you're famous, you're always working. Like you can't, I mean, I guess unless you're at home and you're like trapped in your hotel right. or you're trapped in your hotel room or whatever. But if you're in public, uh, you're working every time you yes. go in public. It's a job. Yes. That would yes. suck. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I see that. I'm, yeah. I think self-consciousness is a really a weird, a weird um, 
thing and having power to, um, I don't want to name this person, but I was with somebody uh, who uh, had a fan come up to him and try to give him a piece of their art or like a thing that they had made. And he said, you know, well, thank you, but I, I won't, I don't want to take it because I have too much stuff at home. And I could see this person just so, was so crushed. Oh, God, and yeah. I thought, oh, it was just like the most brutal, it was so brutal. And I thought, God, couldn't, you could have just taken that thing and just thrown it away. Yeah, I know. You know, that person never would have known. I've oh. been, I've been that guy before. I gave, uh, I gave a copy of my book to, to the, um, Stephen Drossett, I think that's how you pronounce his name, of the Flaming Lips. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm. and, and you know what? I just felt like a fucking asshole afterwards. I was like, why did I just do oh, that? Oh, awful. Yeah. Awful. Miserable. That's terrible. I'm sorry. That's terrible. I'm sorry, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> well, excuse me for liking your work, huh? Yeah. No, well, I mean, I listened to that, I listened to that album a lot. It was just, you know, years and years ago, and I was listening to one of their albums a lot when I was writing, and I was like, oh, you know, they're in town. I'll try to give them a book. And I saw him, and I was like, here you go. And, but just like, what a douchey thing to do. I'm, I'm embarrassed. Yeah. About that. So uncalled for. Well, you have nothing to be embarrassed of. I think it's it's you know people get overwhelmed. They get overwhelmed, and then you know you have. So I mean, oh the the, the long suffering of the famous people. Yeah, 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 yeah. What are they worried about? So uh, are you ever going to cut your hair? Are you ever going to like just shave your head one day and freak everyone out, or is this a lifelong commitment? I do not see myself shaving my head. I one think you day should. I think and... you should. I think you should. <laughs> Go from one extreme to the other, and then just like, but like, but like, maybe carry the carry your hair around for like a year, just as like a morning or something. Or the, one of the biggest questions I get, besides when's the last time you cut your hair, or how is, are you growing it for charity? Everyone thinks that I'm growing it for cancer um, victims, and you know I don't mean to be selfish, but it's you know. It took me a long time to grow this hair. I'm not just one to chop it off and you can, give you, it away. You could get some money for that hair. They, money that Hair like that goes for some good money. Have you heard about the temple in India where the women go and shave their head off once a year? It's the richest uh, uh, religious temple besides the Roman Catholic Church. They take all the hair and they sell it for uh, weeds. No shit. It's for real. They got some good hair. They got some good hair in India, apparently. <laughs> nice thick hair, and even the blonde hair apparently is is often um, Asian hair that's dyed blonde. No kidding. So how much does that? How much does hair go for? You know what the going rate is for like a pound of good hair? <laughs> I have a big old ton of hair on my head all the time, so I have no need to yeah. purchase faux hair. I'm just curious, though. Like, um, what does hair go for? Is there a market value on this? Thing? I- I think it's quite expensive. They, there's that movie, Good Hair. Have you seen that movie? No. It's a documentary. Oh, it's a great movie about um, black hair and the Chris, whole industry Chris surrounding. Did Chris Rock? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. And they had that's they had a thing about the they show the temple in India and talk about how expensive it is to get a hair weave. I mean, the intricacy of that is. Astounding. It's weird that you mentioned that, that Chris Rock comes up because I just watched that movie Top Five last night that he did. I don't mm, know, you, you've seen it? I haven't seen it. No, well, I haven't. It's good. I mean, it's like, you know, he's definitely, the I think, the best movie he's ever done. But there's like a, a quasi-sex scene with him in it. And it's like, you know how some people you are like, I just can't see Chris Rock having sex. Can't do it. <laughs> sort of threw me. Do you know what I'm saying? 
like some people, some, some people you're just not prepared to see engaged in anything like that. And comedians, I think a lot of times you're like, okay, no, it's, it's got to be like awkward sex or like, you know, they have to get denied. It can't be passionate and like, uh, you know, uh, complicit. That's one of the brutalist things that you could say about somebody. I know. I can't, I... Not just, I can't imagine you having sex with a woman or a man, depending on what, but no, just period. I can't imagine you having sex, but, bam. Je, but just, I, I understand what you're brutal. saying. But it is brutal, but if, if there's any fairness to it, I'm sure most of my listeners would feel the same way about me. <laughs> No, uh, no, no, no. But no, it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing to act. And I think part of it maybe is because the performance felt maybe like I, I detected like a whisper of self-consciousness in it. Like he was thinking to himself, like, mm. oh, you know, who knows? That, right, would, that would be right. a hard. That's a hard thing to do well. You know, I see actors that can be bold about their nudity. For example, Gabby Hoffman who was so amazing in um, Crystal Fairy and The Magic Cactus. Did you see that, no. that movie? Wait, is Gabby, Hoffman, oh. is Gabby Hoffman in Girls? Did she cameo in Girls? She, I think I, she is in Girls. I haven't seen her in Girls. She's she, the daughter she was, of she was nude with She was nude with Full Bush in a bathtub giving uh, birth in Girls, if I'm thinking of the right person. I, could I be have wrong. not seen this Girls episode, but in this other movie, she's just she's amazing because she is just out there. She really... Um, you know, she's a beautiful girl, but she's not like a, it's not in some, you know, she's got like unflattering tennis shoes on and is climbing over rocks, just like, yeah, just naked as a jaybird. Doesn't care. Free. Yeah. Free. She's, she's, she's a free. She's free in a way that I'll never be. I could, I don't think I could do that either. I gotta be real. I no. mean, I feel that I'm not an uptight person. I've done some wacky stuff. And Lord only knows, I'm surrounded by crazy family people. <laughs> but uh, I don't know <laughs> if the, yeah, the naked with bad shoes, especially. Yeah, no. At least if you're going to be naked, at least wear some good shoes, for God's sake. Yeah, you know, or barefooted, or yeah. like you just want to pose out a little bit, or just think about the lighting. Yes. Maybe you need some. No, it's like uh, what was I? <laughs> what was the movie? What was the movie uh, I was watching? And I think it was God. Was it Tilda Swinton? It was like Tilda Swinton having outdoor sex in like very bright sunlight, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Mm. Like outdoor sex, Ooh. outdoor sex is is reserved for a very select percentage of the human population, in my opinion. Like you just don't want to have that happen. At least daylight, you know, daylight yeah. outdoor sex. Tilda is a pretty supernatural being, though, and when you think about that scene in that movie where she—I forget the name of the movie—with um, George Clooney. Where she's got the, she's putting the flesh-colored stockings on. Michael Clayton. That's yes. That's a great movie. And yes, and she's amazing. She's yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, she's. Yeah, I love her. She's a terrific actress. And uh, what else was she in? I'm trying to think. Recent. Oh no, she the was Anderson. in. Uh, she was in um, the Wes Anderson movie, the uh, the Budapest Hotel. Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, she, she was fabulous in that. Yeah, she's always she great. Always uh, good. Okay, so uh, I want to get you mentioned that you've done some crazy stuff in your life. Let's get to that. Like, where were you? Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Venice, California, and uh, I don't know. So now you want me to say something crazy? I don't know. I was born and raised in Venice, California. My my parents were um, Bohemian people. In how so? Like, was they, this, were they beatniks? What was their era? They were hippie people, so I was born, um, you know, at the end of that whole thing, on the Venice Canals, and um, so I grew up in, in the, the 
my cousin, she lived around here. We'd roller skate and then walk streets. And, um, you know, Venice was a bad neighborhood when I was a kid. And Okay, um, I was going to ask because it's like, uh, like, how has it changed? I'm picturing California, um, you know, however many years ago as being like more idyllic and less congested. Was it, I mean, was it pretty much the same as, as it is now or has it changed a ton since you were a kid? Venice has just changed. Just uh, it, it was, it, it, for example, now I can walk from my house to the market, you know, on Lincoln, which used to be through a gang neighborhood that you just couldn't, it was just not a walkable neighborhood, or you could, you know, there was like drug buying spots or whatever, and it, it was scary. And even into the 90s, they had they had gunshots and fights and stuff on Abbott Kinney. You ever been, but now you ever been, you ever been held up at gunpoint or robbed or anything? Um, no, you know, I was chased. I remember my cousin and I, uh, roller skating down to go to the Santa Monica Pier and being just terrifyingly chased. And, um... Was this like the 1970s, like roller skating? Yeah, in the 70s, yeah. I'm a super excellent roller skater. Um, (laughs) anyways... Are you you really? (laughs) Yeah, I am. I actually am. Like you can do, Um, like, spins and, like, you can actually do, like, more technical maneuvers on roller skates? I can. I can. My older brother is a good skateboarder and a surfer. My dad and my younger brother is a surfer. Um, yeah, I, I can. I can't surf for shit, though. Okay, so wait, your dad was like a professional surfer or just like he was a good... No, no, no. Oh, no, okay. no. He's just, yeah, no. He, he's more of a body surfer, actually. My younger brother and my older brother surf surfboards. Okay. And they're really good. I don't know if they're really good. My older brother's not good anymore. My younger brother, not, he's they do it. <laughs> they, they haven't died. Really, really good is, is you know, Laird Hamilton. That's really good. They're yeah. not good like that. You know, I have, like, the greatest. I mean, like, when I think about athletes... Um you know, you like the the sports that are on TV a lot and get that kind of uh, get the kind of television ratings, get the most attention, and and you think of these athletes as being the best of the best. But when I think about athletes, like surfers, like Laird Hamilton, who are on those big waves doing that, and then like the rock climbers, who are really climbing yes. insane, especially these free climbing people. Oh, I read that great article last week in the New York uh, Times about that free climber. I Did can't, you read that? Yeah, it makes me like I it makes me like ill to think about doing that. I cannot even imagine. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. My oldest child is um, a climber and a, a, a contortionist, and acrobat, and it, mostly he's a guitar player. But wait a he minute, he's, works, a con- he's a contortionist, like professionally. He he is a professional contortionist. He does. Um, like he's performed with circuses and um, what can he do he with his do, body? What can he do? He can have he can his back is incredibly flexible. So like his chest would be on the ground, and he can bend his uh, back so that his feet are on the sides of his head, and then he can walk his feet three sixty around his body, stuff like that. And he can do the um, you know uh, tumbling, you know where your hands to feet and flipping and all that kind of stuff. But so since he was a little kid, when he was a tiny, I mean, two, he could jump off things that were three times his own height. I mean, really high things and just land it. And he would not get hurt. And I, I, when the mother in that article about the free climber said that, you know, she just had to come to an understanding that he knew what his limits were. And so she just stopped worrying about it. And I really empathized with that because he just does stuff where 
you know, it's, it seems impossible, but then there he is. Just, you know, and after a while, you're like, oh, yeah, of course he can just, like... And he's never hurt himself. Jump off this thing. He's never, like, I mean, he, pulled a muscle or a ligament or anything? He's had... Oh, well, I think, you know, there's, like, small... He, I, he had... Once he cut, he banged open his shin and went the entire day with this gaping wound, and then, and I somehow had the sense to pick him up, and, you know, sure enough, he needed stitches on his shin, but really not very much. I mean, he, you know, sometimes he, his back is a little sore or something, or his muscles are sore, or, you know, he's uh, done something exhausting, but, but, yeah, not so much. Wow, that's crazy. Where does he get this from? It is crazy. I, I don't know. You have no history, you have no <laughs> I mean, genetic I, history of this. You can't do this stuff. I can do the splits and stuff. I'm, I'm kind of flexible, and uh, so, and I, but I think it's just his, his, his magic because my other children um, are not like that. They can't do so it. So his sisters, they're yeah, they're not. They're rigid. They're rigid. And they're rigid and, and timid <laughs> and easily injured. They're just uptight. Yes, yeah. that's my kind of people. Uh, no, so what yeah, kind of what kind of kid were you? Like what kind of kid were you growing up in Venice? Were you like a, I mean you have these bohemian parents and I feel like the, the you know because I grew up with parents who were not like overly strict but who were conservative and more you know tr- quote mm-hmm. unquote traditional and I always mm-hmm. imagined like oh my god if you had bohemian parents like what a dream that would be to have this mm-hmm. per- permissive environment and then I meet people who had that like bohemian permissive childhood and they're like oh my god all I wanted was structure. Like where do you fall on that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I understand about the structure thing a little bit. I mean, there was definitely a, um, well, my parents got divorced, and... How old? Uh, my mom, oh, like, before I can remember. So I had a sort of an untraditional household in a way that my parents were divorced or separated or whatever by the time I was five or so, and my mother um, worked as a costume designer for movies, and... Um, her boyfriend was an artist, and he so he was kind of like a stay-at-home um, mom, a person. He did that role, like picking me up from school and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, but, um, you know, uh, I don't want to talk too much smack, but I remember <laughs> times, definitely parties in the house and stuff like that, and thinking to myself, I'm the most in-control person here. <laughs> or, you know, these, like, people, these, the people are, these people are wasted. Yeah, you know, and, and the, so there were times, and I, I remember I remember a time uh, going to the anti-club in Hollywood and being in this sketchy neighborhood and thinking to myself, you know, when I have kids, maybe I'll be like a little bit more Where was What's worried. the anti-club? Where's that at? <laughs> It's not there anymore, but it was a it was a it was a punk rock venue back in the day, um, a long time ago. Hollywood's still shitty. It's yeah. never it's not gotten any better. I don't feel like. Yeah, it is shifty. It is shifty and 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 kind of horrible. Yeah, no, I said <laughs> shitty. I, I meant I meant shitty. <laughs> shitty. Not, yeah, not even shifty. I would I would ta- I would take shifty. I would take shifty over shitty, but it's uh, it's, it's authentically shitty. There's some, you know, my grandmother lives in Laurel Canyon. And uh, that's kind of it's near West Hollywood over there. That's there's beautiful. No, oh, no, beautiful West Hollywood's places. fine. Hollywood West, are, West Hollywood's fine. Yeah, it's it's the uh, it's like the Walk of Stars area. That's where it's just oh, there's something rotten. Oh. There's something rotten in that little pocket of Los Angeles. <laughs> I must say, I do appreciate the architecture, though. Yeah. The the um, the Grandma's Chinese Theater and all that stuff. I like all that. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Can, you could just get rid of the people. It'd be awesome. 
<laughs> well, like so many things. If yes. you could just get rid of the people. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so you grow up, you have this like uh, per- permissive or more, at least more permissive, relatively speaking, household. Uh, when, yeah. you're f- when you're 15 years old, do you have a curfew? Can you do whatever you want? Oh, I never had a curfew, and my kids never had curfews. No, never a curfew. You know, the thing for me is that my older brother is, I have two half-brothers, so my, you know, it's one of these hippie things. My mom had a child very, very young, and then she married my dad, and she had me. Wait, wait, and she my had, dad, I lost you for a second. You said she had a child yeah. very, very young? She did, my older brother. Okay. And so, and so he's my half-brother by my mother, and my other brother is my half-brother by my father. So my older brother is pretty much crazy so he was so crazy that i just there was nothing i could do that could be bad compared to well he's a he's a wild child he's doing lots of drugs and partying and stuff he was doing lots of drugs and partying and being uh bad and like bad you know kind of a skateboarder kid like when you think of like those 70s dogtown kids that are like you know jumping in the pools and breaking shit and being all crazy he was like that. He was the prototype. He was like that. Yes. Or he was he was one of those kind of kids. That's He's one of those kind of kids. No good. One of those kind of kids that like like today at my age I look at and I feel like a little afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Just straight up violence, you know, yeah. kids that would fight, kids that would um, you know, they're they're uh, vandalizing stuff or trouble. No, yeah, listen, was, any, 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 any guy, any guy, I don't care what age he is, he could be 14 years old, anyone who has no fear of a fist fight scares the shit out of me. <laughs> right. I'm, ter- I'm terrified. <laughs> well, growing up with somebody like that, too, who, who you know, he an out-of-control temper is really, um, not to get maudlin on you, but... Yeah, it was scary to, ha- to you know, and that, that gave me, um, I think, a sense of caution, too, where though I have had a um, weird life and I'm surrounded by um, artists and all that kind of stuff, I, I am I'm not down for any kind of screaming or violence or any kind of, you, had you know, that, that, yeah, and I don't romanticize that. It's not cool. Yeah, no, neither do I. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. there's something. Like, there's something uh, like ang- there's something very dangerous about anger. Even anger that can like seem small, you know, and like sort of matter of fact, and like like a daily kind of anger. Like it, you can't let that stuff fester. It's true. I think. I think. Uh, I think there's something to be said even for the uh, Eastern religions where they're they're having a um, a higher regard for self control. And I think there's a way that that actually, um, uh, you know, whatever European people can really go wrong with this. Like, oh, you you need to release the anger. I I actually don't think that that's right. I I don't think that anger is like this this vomit that you have to um, spew everywhere. In fact, sometimes you're better off chilling out for a minute and thinking about, you know, the repercussions of your actions. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. This like punch the pillow thing, you know, where it's you're you're sort of performing your anger. Like that's never going to help. It's going to yeah. perpetuate it. It's and it's also not to mention very childish. I think so too. I mean, it's interesting because in art, it can be so. I think especially in music, so powerful to use your anger or to use your your. Um, 
your your voice and I'm, I'm you know make music sometimes too and getting to do um some punk rock classic songs and stuff like that where you really get to just give the most hard delivery the most intense delivery or um it's it's uh there's a beautiful catharsis to that that you're you're doing something positive yet uh, using, I am able to use my full voice and use my full energy as a person. That's that that can be so amazing and transcendent. But, but are you but are you angry when you're doing it? Are you angry? When oh you, no, no, so no, that's no. The thing. It's done with pure, yeah, pure love. Yeah. yeah, it's a kind of energy. It's a kind of non-shushing energy, <laughs> right? Women are so often. Um, sh- you know, quiet, shush, shush. And I, I find myself you know, saying that to my kids, too. Well, why are you saying these things? Shush, shush. Right. Um, but but what a, what, how great to just get to be like, ah! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, especially if you can sing. I mean, you know, like if it's coming, even if it's like really like, like scream singing or like really like punk rocky singing, like. Yeah. You know. oh, all the kinds of singing are so, uh, I mean, opera singers, do they get joy from making those big sounds like that? Of I course think, they do. Yeah, I think of singing, they do. being a singer in front of people, like in terms of actually doing an art, has to be the most rewarding art to do. Or, or I guess maybe playing an instrument really loudly. But something about using your own voice as the instrument and having that, like, that direct um, uh, relationship with the the person consuming your art. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that back and forth is kind I of do good. know what you're saying. Yeah. You, 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 you I do, do know what you're saying. I have no idea what I'm saying, but you do. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very uh, beautiful, and I think that, um, some, that 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 you do know what you're saying because everybody has some experience of singing. Um, I think that that uh, not like you, that. You see the joy that that children. Yeah, well, children that they have even bad singers, even if you uh, uh, you know. Can't there's a great book Linda Berry? You know Linda Berry. She does um, comics and um, she did uh, a comic in the LA Weekly for a very long time, and she's done several like graphic novels. But she made a book that I can't recall the name of right now, but about artistic inspiration, and and she had a whole thing about singing and how you should try just sing and when no one's there, just for the pure joy of it, and how how much that will help you release your um, creativity yeah no you know it's funny you know what it makes me think of is it makes me think of uh people on hallucinogens i was reading something and it was like somebody was on ayahuasca and shit was getting dark and then like they were instructed to start singing and everything turned better which i guess makes some sense yeah yeah are you into the ayahuasca uh never done it i've never done it but i'm I'm curious i'm I'm like curious slash terrified you're ayahuasca curious Uh, yeah i'm I'm, I'm totally (laughs) I'm ayahuasca curious, but like also like maybe in a way that's not so great. Feel like I might have missed my window. Like I have that I'm too old feeling, but like that's probably mm. that's probably not right. I don't know. Well, let me ask you this question: Have you spent any time in like a commune or any kind of like art, um, like a um, uh, like religious retreat type situation? No, I'm terrified of that. But, but I'm yeah. also curious about that. Like being a, the thing about uh-huh. it is again, I, I want to be someplace very serene and remote and spiritual, mm-hmm. but without the people. It's the people that terrify yeah. me. Well, because the people are terrifying, right? Yeah, we yeah. In, in the school I went to, they made us go to a commune and do this this whole like religious retreat thing. And boy, if there's a thing to make, well, I just I pretty much wanted to just kill everybody. And they had a 
see your ayahuasca singing, your friends singing during the ayahuasca, which I'm sure was beautiful for them. And I won't deny them, but it reminded me of this cult-like thing where you're made to sing these corny songs, and boy, they're about to be like my older brother and just uh, bring some whoop-ass on on that. (laughs) Wait, where was this? You're in high high school? This is high school? In high school, yeah. They made us do this whole wilderness retreat thing and I mean these people were good intentioned and everything but I, I wasn't wanting to do this I had all these piercings in my ears and we were, had the um, they were going to make us do a you know, sweat lodge and I, I was not feeling the new age because I think for me growing up in the 70s I associated that kind of like like some weird old dude in the health food store, like, I'm going to, let me give you a back rub, kind of a, <laughs> kind of a vibe. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me, let me braid your hair, little girl. You yeah, know. like, yeah. what's your horoscope? Uh, I can, you know, that, that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyways, you could, it could bum you out. Totally. So, yeah, that's, a, that's yeah. another thing. Because I, I come from, like, the buttoned-up Midwest, and then, like, I went west, and then had, like, a brief hippie thing when I was in college, and then... You know, I came to like all exposure to all of this so late. It wasn't part of my youth. You know, it was like mm. some, it was like some exotic thing. And then you you find yourself like I find myself feeling like behind the curve. It's like oh my god, like I, uh, you know, everything from like what you wear to what music you're into. I meet people who grew up in it, and it's like <laughs> it's old news to them by the time they're like 15, and here I am like 25, like being like oh my god, you know, like such and such, or you know what I'm saying. So like for you, I do new age yeah, stuff. You were like, fuck it, this is old news and it's creepy and you processed Oh, man, that. they made us meditate in the morning in school. <laughs> we had to meditate every morning. I mean, and, and on this weirdo tip, I, my childhood best friend's mother was a sculptor. She made these monumental 10-foot-tall sculptures. Like she had a, 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 a sort of people and stuff. So, like, they, she had... Uh, they had carousel animals and these monumental sculptures inside the house so we could pretend to be little mice and um, with these giant things around us. It's such a surreal house. And I remember when I was maybe 16 or 17, uh, and then also, well, so I was in this surreal house with my friend often, and, and I went to school with a lot of rich kids. So either people had mansions or super artistic houses but I remember when I was 15 or 16 going to what to me was the first just like really normal sort of um, somebody's just really plain kind of tacky house in, in Mar Vista and just thinking. Like that would have been like this, me. You basically went. Yeah, to like, like this mushroom <laughs> magnets on the refrigerator. Like what the fuck is this? <laughs> and it was like. Dumpy shit. Yeah, you went, you went to like the, the straight conservative house and it was like trippier than like your friend's house with like, you know, sculptures, sculptures of like Satan in the front lawn. Of course, the worst was, I remember in elementary school, a childhood friend, she was super wealthy. Her dad was some kind of a lawyer. They had a mansion in in Westwood, and just the house was so perfect, like the carpet was all in one direction. Her room was absolutely pristine and, I mean, just unbelievable. And coming into her house, we were going to have a play day after school, and her sister marched into the house and just slapped her right across the face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, and the dad was scary as hell. He had me over the the at the dinner and was just. I mean, I was on the witness stand. This guy was like, just uh, grilling didn't you. Know when, yeah, he was grilling me. Did he think you were a bad influence because you were from like a bohemian household or something? You know, I I had the sense at the time that maybe it was 
that I was somehow, um, you know, not meeting his criteria for, for his, his daughter. It was like they were really, really wealthy. Um, I felt certainly inside the, the difference between okay. yeah, like, my me, life yeah. and, and this girl's life. No, but I was going to ask you that because I'm raising a child in Los Angeles and it's like, um, when I grew up in the Midwest, like for all of its, uh, I like to bag on it a little bit, but I mean, I have a love for it too, and it's a good place to grow up. And one of the things about it that I liked is that I didn't have any sense of class at all. I had, mm. I did, like, it never even occurred to me to worry or be even think about that until I got to college and I met people with, like, yeah. real, you know, with real money, or it started to occur to me, like, mm-hmm. oh, there's a difference. But, like, you grow up in Los Angeles. And uh, it seems like that those differences can be really stark, and maybe the culture is more obsessed with it, with uh, material wealth right. and all that kind of stuff. So, like growing up, did you have your antenna up for that kind of thing? When I, I did, I did a little bit, and and I I remember we had a carpool at um, at the school, and the the kids were other kids were ashamed of the of the car of the car that we had. <laughs> And which, um, which was our what? car it was like, I don't know kinds of cars, but it was like some kind of an old, like vintage car. It's probably a car that's like worth a lot now, like a whatever, some kind of an old cool car, like a Chevy or something. Right. Anyways, but they were embarrassed of the fact that we had this like weird, not new car. Um, and I, I do, and I do, so in elementary school, I remember, I didn't feel really ashamed of it myself. I was kind of like, whatever, but I, I knew, I knew there was a difference. But by high school, then I just got to dominate, and because it was cooler to be, uh, you know, not not like a you know richy rich kid, and and um, I could kind of be. You have more authenticity. I could be different. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and then I think by high school, uh, people started to be okay to understand. Okay, this is an artistic person, and this is a weirdo. Or I was able to kind of um, really. If you're, if you're gonna identity. be if you're gonna be if you're gonna be not super wealthy in Los Angeles, it's good to be like super eccentric and artsy because then people are like, okay, cool, like this is what they're into, and like they're spiritually more realized than I am, and they're like tapped into something. And do you know what I'm saying? I do, and I I mean even on a on a every level and the whole that there is, I think it's important to have things that have actual value as opposed to just symbolic value and what has real value what makes your life uh worth living is relationships you know having people that you love around you um you know what what does it matter what kind of stupid fucking ugly purse or some right. crap like that i don't understand that I, shit at all i don't understand it even yeah. like the you know obviously but, but the thing is though i say that i have to be i have to be honest because uh and i've mentioned this before on this show is that like I'm all about blending. And like mm. fortunately Los Angeles when it comes to dress, I mean for all of its high fashion, which it does have that element. It's a pretty I mean it's a very laid back um dress code in Los Angeles. So I don't mm-hmm. have to spend a lot to blend in, but like mm. if I go to New York City or I'm in like uh Europe or something in some uh, capital city or something, like I'll find myself dressing up more because I don't want to stand out. Like I can't dress like I'm in LA when I'm in New York. Does that make sense? Mm. I always want try to stand out and have a bold outfit, and and I look like a complete. If I have any, if I'm putting even the littlest bit of effort into it, I look like a complete nut. And when I went to New York to visit my daughter, I sewed myself a special outfit that I thought would be good for the subway, 
You don't get, Boy, so you don't, did you don't, I you don't, not know what I was doing. Yeah, you, but you don't, you don't care if all the eyeballs are on you? That doesn't bother you? You like that? I, I think I, I see it as, um, as a gift that you're giving everyone and, and not just a, a gift of making yourself look uh, beautiful and different, but also a message that you're sending out to everybody else who, who feels different that I'm not alone. You, they they can look at me and say, "Wow, she's getting down with her bad self." She, you know what I mean? She's unafraid to be bold and look different. That and I know, you know, somebody who dresses like that. I think that you could look at me and I've got my hair down and I've got my outfit on. Um, that you can know that I'm a person who is. Um, you know, an artistic person, or it's got maybe even the politically liberal person, or you know what I mean. There's there's important and see, visual things. And by that con- are, by contrast with my like very bland, boring approach to fashion, I'm sending out the message that I'm very timid and afraid, and you should be too. <laughs> <laughs> Just blend I, in. Don't express I, yourself. Don't add color to the world. <laughs> Crush you! You're just, just you're just saying like just take your inner joy and just squish it. Yes, no, just no. Put on, just put on your hoodie. <laughs> just put on your hoodie and, and meekly walk down the sidewalk. <laughs> oh well, you know I even further have a further political agenda with my clothes, which I try to I sew my own clothes. Yeah. Okay. And um, or you, you know vintage things. Sometimes I'll rework old things. I mean, not all of my clothes, but I try, especially on an occasion somebody's gonna be photographing it or whatever i try to wear something that i made myself so you can sew you can do all that stuff i can i can where'd you learn that um i kind of taught myself you know i mean like i said my mother uh is a movie costume designer she oh right did a lot of movies yeah Yeah, um but she didn't teach me how to sew she's not a um teachery did did she did she sleep with jim morrison i heard a rumor that your mother was that is that your mother or no she did she slept. She, with, she slept with Jim Morrison. <laughs> Apparently, she did. Yes. Uh, like how yes. true? How, do you, how true do you think this is? Uh, well, I'm, I've known John Densmore in, in my life, and uh, who's the drummer of the Doors, so I, I know it's true. Okay, and I so mean, and what is everybody, the, according to everyone around, it's, it's supposed to be true. So. What was her? What was her report? Was he great? Was I mean, he's a, he's a rock god. She said. She said. Uh, if you're, it was somebody who was drunk and didn't care how you felt, it was kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I mean, Drunken and yeah. didn't care how you, you know, about you. That was so. Yeah, well, he was a. Like, Doesn't sound too awesome. It sounds like a little subpar. Yeah, well, he was a. Bad Although drunk. I have to say, I'm a big fan of his singing. There's a person who was free in his I, singing. Very bold approach. I I argue this all the time. He sounds like Frank Sinatra. No, but people give me shit when I say that. But I'm thinking like. He really had like this really classic, almost like mid-century voice that he like you know put into a rock context. I think it's an awesome, an awesome voice. I was about to argue with you too, and I held back for a second with my fabulous <laughs> self-control. And now I think I understand what you're saying because he his delivery is not Sinatra like really at all, but he has a deep uh, tone. I think maybe the the timber of their voices that are symbol similar i think that's what you're hearing yeah um yeah, i want to so, say i want to say i read to... i want to say i read somewhere i might be pulling that from something like morrison himself said once or like that he grew up like teaching himself how to sing like by like singing along with sinatra on the radio which i think would have been his childhood era i mean something like that yeah. huh so I don't know. See, here's the other problem. I hate Frank Sinatra. I know people get into that as a retro thing, but no, I just, no, God, no. I can't stand that genre of music. It bums me out so much. No, I'm like that. My, my, I'm like that. 
kind of. My wife hates fifties music, like Bill yeah. Bill Haley and the Comets and all that shit. Like it makes it literally makes her like curl up into the fetal position. She can't deal. <laughs> There's something like dark at the heart of that fifties rock and roll, or so, you know, just like really happy. She had some bad experience during the Happy Days show, and yeah. now it's yeah. <laughs> right. in Cafe Fifties sure. and all. <laughs> Well, it. it just say there's something I think it I think it just like gives like off like or it it, it it um it insinuates falsity or it makes me think of like some sort of like really like dark falsity because of the fifties mm. and the way that they sort of are presented to us. Um, yeah. Especially in retrospect. Obviously I don't think that's the way that they actually were, but there's something about mm-hmm. the aesthetic of that decade that mm-hmm. um you know seems yeah, it seems creepy because it, it, it portends there are so many dark things to come and that decade seems to mm. deny, deny all of them. <laughs> Mm, yes. Although I have to say for me, in terms of the 50s music, the, the beginnings of rock and roll, um, there's some good, uh, strong musicians in, in Chuck there. Chuck Berry. Um, Chuck Berry. Yeah. Fast Domino. Fast yeah. Domino is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's, there's a lot of people, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah, 50s, yeah. 50s. It's creepy. So did it's you ever, were you ever, hip, were you ever like a hippie? Like, I mean, I'm trying to, trying to think of your era. You never had like a hippie phase. You sort of grew up in that. So you were. Well, in... I'm, I'm too young for that to be, you know, but. No, but um... I'm, I, but listen, <laughs> I, I had, I had. I'm a, in I a had... life hippie phase then. If, if it's not, if it, you don't have to be alive at the time, then, then I'm a lifer. Yeah, no, I don't, but that's I'm the thing. That's the thing. I was a hippie for like, you know, I had long hair and was like a hippie and like all that kind of stuff. But like. You, like you didn't, you didn't have to go through a phase. That was the, that was sort of like the environment that you were in. So did you, you didn't have anything to really rebel against in the traditional sense. But did you ever go wild and like do a bunch of drugs? Uh, and- well, um, did I ever go wild and did I have things to rebel against? I certainly had many things to rebel against, um, and I can still even rebel against things. Um, I certainly experimented with drugs and and you know to, to the normal level. I think. Um, but nothing, but nothing I, excessive. Nothing excessive, but I certainly have seen excessive drug use around me um, to not want to be around excessive drug use. <laughs> like, right. Right. Uh But I had children very young. So I was 19 um, when I was pregnant with my first child. And so it, it kind of, that those times that you're talking about college and that stuff, I... I I was not uh, as crazy as as some people because I did. Um, I had children to take care of. I I have always had my you were, entire you were adult a, life. You were I, a child yourself. Had, you were a kid. I was I was literally a teenage mother, and and uh, so I had. I mean, it was a real uh, gift in a way. I I can see there's certain things that I did as a young. Uh, mother that better than I would do now. Right. Um, for example, like now I'm worried about things being clean or I want them to be beautiful in a way that I didn't give a shit about when I was young. Like, okay, well, I'll just, do you want to smash this thing? Like, fuck it. Let's just <laughs> smash this thing. Let's make a big fucking mess. Like, you know what I mean? I have a more free attitude a little bit. Yeah. And then I've, I've gotten more, you know, exacting about stuff as I've gotten older. Like, oh, I knew this beautiful, you know, pillow made of a whatever the fuck you know i've got my fabulous bohemian architecture like design going on i don't want bubbles all over it or whatever yeah but i didn't used to be that way so much so well your kids are getting you know your kids are older i think like there's a certain you have to be sort of resigned when they're young i mean they're going to smash it anyway eventually (laughs) 
think that I love little kids. The the freeness of little children. I mean, you talk about singing yeah. and uh, using their voices and their bodies and expressing themselves. I think uh, our our culture is very mean about children um, because it's so everybody's rushing and hurrying and everything's supposed to be. There's so much pressure to make them. Uh, mature faster than is natural, but I think it, one of the most truly psychedelic experiences you can have is if there's a little a little child like a kid under three. Do uh, you do, do ayahuasca? Down. Just do ayahuasca. No, 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 no! You don't have to take any ayahuasca. <laughs> All you have to do is there, there's, go outside, look at a tree, look at some birds. A little child is going to be gripped. There is so they've never seen a bird before, right. and just to be near that novelty. I mean, it really, not to like cornball it up, but it really is magical. It really is a. Um, I think one of the most beautiful things. And it's instructive. You're like, oh, okay, these people know how to live. Like, they're reminding me. Like, what a, yes. Like, well, I'm like, right. oh, I've been living my life in a sleepwalk for the past two decades. Like, thank <laughs> you for waking me up temporarily before I, you know, quickly re- re-enter my fugue state. <laughs> my aunt said a beautiful thing to me. She said that your children's childhood is is for you, not for them, because they won't even remember it, really. But you get to remember it. So you get to relive your your childhood through them in this way. There's a, like a cool circle there. No, I, but I, I should be more morbid. I should be saying something darker. My kids are always being so dark with their, their art and whatnot. I should make everything seem more grim. No, but it's like I feel. But here's the thing, though. I think I think when when people are able to make dark art and they have and they're able to kind of express their dark side. Um, with clarity and with humor sometimes of a dark variety. Like I think a lot of times it's because it's precisely because they come from parents who um, they know they have the unconditional love of. They don't feel like any fear of alienation or I guess there are some people who would do it just to say, fuck you, mom and dad. I don't give a shit what you think. But um, more often than not, I feel like it's the, it's the other, it's kind of like counterintuitive. I feel like they have, they feel like they have that permission to go there and they feel um, unafraid of expressing themselves, even if what they're saying yes. isn't necessarily popular or bright and cheerful, you know? The thing I'm most proud of as a parent that is that my children all have enough uh, stability and sense of, um, I mean, stability, sense of rootedness, that they can be uh, bold and creative in, in risky ways. Uh, it's the thing that makes me most proud and also tormented you know, sometimes <laughs> by their work. But, but but most proud, though, because it's it is it's hard. And that for me, that that was something I, I think um, my parents could have, you know, wasn't so stable feeling. That's not a feeling little kids should have to have. Like, whoa, everybody's out of control. Right. And kids, but kids, kids, kids ha- that in a little bit. No, but kids have, an, you know, kids have an intuition and it's scary. It's scary, you know, for a, a young child. Yeah. Like even. Um, you know, I think of my daughter, like anytime mm-hmm. I, if I show any kind of upset or like if I seem afraid, you know, like something will happen and I'll be startled and, you know, she'll read that on my face and then it's like, oh God, you know what I'm saying? So right. um, yeah. k- kids are looking, if, if, if anything, they're looking to their parents for like uh, steadiness, you know, and, and to yeah. know that things are, that they're safe. Right. That's true. And, and it's safe. And I think one of the things that, that um, I've been able to do and my husband also is uh, because we're sort of uh, bold about performing or or being out there singing or kind of you know playing instruments or um, 
not being, you know, looking crazy or uh, being sort of different, that 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 we were able to let the kids know that that was safe. And I have to say my parents did that for me as well. My mother especially, who's truly um, the more bohemian of my two parents for sure. Um, she definitely, you know, I learned, look at her, she's made her living with, with being uh, creative. And in fact, almost everybody, almost she slept all of with, She slept with Jim Morrison, for God's sakes. I mean, come on. <laughs> But almost all of my relatives are in something artistic, so they're, they're, it runs in the family, the, the nutcase attitude. Yeah. <laughs> it's a does your family, does your family, are, are you the only writer in your family, or only, are the other only. people writers? No, yeah. only. I mean, I have, like, on my mom's side, one of my aunts is, like, a, a good painter, and another of my, my uncle's an architect and can draw really well. His, and his mm-hmm. kids, his kids are artistic. So, like, and then my great grandfather was a professional pianist. Um, oh, wow. Strangely enough, which like I didn't grow up with a piano or any musical instruments or even a stereo in my house. And not, wow. not for like footloose reasons. Like it wasn't some like <laughs> religious thing, but just because like my parents just like didn't think to have didn't, one, you know, they didn't, care. they didn't give a shit. They didn't have records or anything. So wow. like, that's I, amazing. I have no Did idea. We have similar family, family heritages though, in a way though, because uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was an architect. My grandmother was a, actually a famous poet. And um, and then the, the, my other side, my father's father Wait, was a writer. The, my was, father. Who was the famous poet? Her name is Anne Stanford. Okay. You can Wikipedia that shit. Okay. Yeah, I'll go Wikipedia <laughs> Anne Stanford. Yeah, do it. So you got all kinds <laughs> of art. You got all kinds of artists in your family. I do. I do. It's it's uh, they're just uh, yeah. Like I said, pretty much everybody does something artistic. That's cool, but it's also like you know, like the, it's not an easy life. It's not the it's not the easiest, most linear, professional life. Like you have to be willing to assume, or maybe you don't have a choice if you're really hardwired for this stuff to e- exist on a, on a bit of a rockier path most of the time. You know what I'm saying? It's not as uh, yeah. I sometimes envy people who have that linear progression where it's just like get this degree, get this, do this, right. it's done, and it's like you know, it's just not the case for the for the arts. I never am envious of having to go and physically be in some office or some place like that all day. I just can't. I, it seems nightmarish to me. Yeah. Um, but, but I do uh, have a, a – some sciences are interesting. I like medicine. I think that, that biology is really interesting. And so I, there's some kinds of more straight careers like that that uh, I think um, – are cool. I think medicine is cool. I think certain kinds of science, um, like physicists and stuff. Not that I have the skill set for that, but I think those kinds of fields, those are those astronomy. Are I was looking. I was looking up at the sky the other night, and I was thinking, like, I can okay astronomy because I'm not scientific at all. I'm thinking like astronomy, is something I can get down with. Like to spend my time right. just like staring up at the heavens and trying to be uh, trying to figure out what's going on up there. That seems to me like a more um, I don't know. Like, relatable, it relates to me better somehow. There's something. Uh, yeah. There's something awesome about it. Well, it's how weird is it? It's too large to even conceive of. Our yeah. brains don't. I don't work that way. I often think about. I think so many of the problems with our world are related to scale. That we we're too big. We're moving things around too much. Um, everything's out of the scale of the human body. Uh, so we've been 
flying in planes so that you can do things like fly and be back in time in some kind of a crazy, you know what I mean? Like you're flying to Australia and somehow it only two hours have passed or, you know what I'm saying? That kind yeah, of, yeah. Um, and so that, that it causes environmental problems, it causes um, economic problems. Um, so it's, I, I think we could all scale, uh, think about, scale down a little bit, think about things in our, our more um, immediate area while using our minds to conceive of um, philosophical and, and scientific uh, hypotheses. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think uh, I was reading in the paper, I was reading in the New York Times, this, uh, I think it was this morning or yesterday, that like some uh, astronomers or scientists are starting to urge other astronomers and scientists to, to stop trying to send out uh, communications into outer space because they're like, dude, we could we could wake up the beast. We don't want like, crazy fucking aliens to come over here and try to like you know rape our planet of its resources or like eat us for food or something. Like that sort of uh, sent a shiver down my spine. I was like, oh god. <laughs> yeah, I know. Haven't you seen Alien? Come on. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, I mean it's, it sounds so absurd to think about, but it's like it's a real it's a real thing. I mean, you know, the universe is so gigantic that it's entirely conceivable right. that like. We could just be hidden away, and then, like you know, several light years away, there could be uh, planets filled with beings that are like you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years beyond us developmentally, but but which are not uh, benign. You know, they're right. actually predatory and evil. Who knows? Yes. Well, look at look at how we behave. I yeah. mean, further, I think there's a massive wasting of resources. Um, I, I somehow I just hate that Richard Branson with the the going to. <laughs> Outer space, no, I mean, I'm sorry, but it just seems the just height of arrogance and just despicable, honestly. I because have, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. It, it's such a waste of energy, and even the idea of, I was watching a show about the mountain climbers climbing K2 in, in um, uh, it's like the, one of the 8,000 high peaks, the most difficult to climb, more difficult to climb than Mount Everest. And there's, you know, there's not enough air, and then these crazy tents that are clinging to the sides of these cliffs. And I thought, people want to go to outer space where there's no air. They think they're going to make a, you know, a, a village out there. How could you eat? How could you... How could you no, <laughs> I, I, I could not agree with you more. I have absolutely no desire. It could be, the sa- it could be as safe as taking an elevator to go to outer yeah. space, and I'd be like, no, <laughs> fuck that. I have no... What a shithole out of Like, A, we've trashed it, just like we've trashed right. Mount Everest. It's filled with nothing right. but garbage. And then, B, it's black, empty, airless space. There's nothing up there. Mars is a red wasteland. I don't even give a shit about looking at pictures. I don't want to see it. <laughs> I disgusting. totally agree. <laughs> I totally agree. I, yeah, what is the fucking point? And no plants and no, oh, God. It's, yeah. yeah. Who, I mean, no, we, I, we live in paradise. The earth is beautiful. There's nothing. There's not, I've never seen a planet more beautiful than earth. I'm happy here. Let's just not fuck this one it's up. It's true. It's true. Even, and I love the ocean, and I live by the ocean. It's a gift. Um, but even boats, you get out on a boat sometimes, you think, boy, if this, I spent a lot of time going to Catalina on boats when I was a kid. I think, God, if I had to swim to shore, I'd be fucked. Right. <laughs> like, there's right. just no way. Um, so, yeah. well, there on that, you on go. That, on, that, on that dark note. <laughs> But actually kind of a bright... We're all going to die. We're all going to die. The <laughs> aliens are coming for us. They're going to feast upon our resources and organs. And we, we will uh, wake up in a weird metallic room where we will be probed. But, uh, 
you know, that or we're already human batteries, and it's a totally matrix type of deal. It could so. be. It could be. Uh, but it's been, it's been really fun talking with you. I appreciate you taking the time uh, out, out of your day, and I wish you all the best. Yes. Thank you. Back to you, and, and uh, love to your family. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Michiko Kakatani, chief book critic for the New York Times. Actually, uh, that's not Michiko Kakatani. April Fools. <laughs> April Fools, everybody. Did you really think that was Michiko Kakatani? If you got to this point in the episode actually believing that I was talking to Michiko Kakatani, Pulitzer Prize winning chief book critic of the New York Times, uh, I want you to do something for me. Would you please email me uh, at letters at otherppl.com or tweet at me at otherppl. Tell me your story. Pour your heart out. I want to hear about your emotional experience of this episode, and uh, I wouldn't mind hearing about your feelings of deep shame, having fallen for this prank. The truth, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is that my guest today is Laura Norton. Some of you may know her as the singer in the Chuck Dukowski sextet. Chuck Dukowski, of course, being a uh, longtime member of Black Flag. Others of you... Uh, might know Laura as the mother of Mira Gonzalez. My buddy Mira, the poet, the uh, prolific tweeter, who happens to have a book coming out this May, a collection of uh, her own tweets combined with the tweets of uh, Tao Lin, the author Tao Lin. They're co-authoring a book of their tweets, if that makes sense. It's due to be published by Short Flight Long Drive Books uh, in May, so keep an eye out for that. I think it's in May. Do I have my head on straight? It's coming out in the, uh, in the spring. I think it's coming out in May. It's a book of tweets by Mira Gonzalez and uh, Talon. And keep an eye out for uh, Laura Norton. You can follow her on the Twitter, at Laura Norton, L-O-R-A Norton. And keep an eye out for the Chuck Dukowski sextet as well. I believe they have a Facebook page. So thank you to Laura for taking the time to talk. That was fun. Thank you uh, as well to Michiko Kakatani. Michiko, if you're listening, I hope you enjoyed this. And I want you to know that I love you. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own app. Go get the app. It's available for your device. It's free. Did I mention that it's free? The app is free. You get the app on your device, on your iPhone, on your iPad, on your Android device, your phone, whatever. It's available. It's free. Get it. And then when you get it, the most recent 50 episodes of this podcast are waiting for you free. And then if you want to stream episodes in the deep archives, if you want access to all 350-something episodes, you just sign up for premium right there within the app. Premium costs uh, as little as 75 cents a month. It's absurd. Stupid. Sign up for premium. Jesus. April Fool's. <laughs> Got a lot of pleasure out of that, putting this episode together, realizing that uh, Wednesday was the 1st of April. I, I put new episodes out on Wednesday. It just so happens that April Fool's this year happens to fall on a Wednesday. I could not resist. Sorry if I crushed your dreams of hearing uh, the actual Michiko Kakatani. I feel like Laura was pretty good, though. She's good to talk to. That whole family's good. It's a good tribe. Please remember that the word nihilism was coined by Turgenev for use in his novel Fathers and Sons and that Italo Calvino died after suffering, uh, suffering a cerebral hemorrhage while sitting in a garden. That's it for now. 
It's kind of nice to uh, if you're going to have a cerebral hemorrhage, might as well happen in a garden in Italy. In, uh, Italy. Thanks again to uh, Laura Norton. That's it for now. Thanks to Michiko. God bless everyone. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Thanks, you guys. Seriously, bless you. Oh, wait, this song's not over yet. I feel like I have to keep talking until it's over. I feel pressure. April Fools. <laughs> This might be the meanest episode in the history of the podcast in terms of the listener. I feel like maybe I've abused you a little bit. I hope you'll forgive me. <laughs>